do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community. Perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Studying Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Katie. And I'm Jade. And this is Future Studying. Wow. What a week. I nearly didn't get this episode to you and I thought for the first time in 76 episodes I was going to have to offer an apology for a 24-hour late delivery. But we've made it happen right in the nick of time. Um, despite the odds, it's been one of those weeks where loads and loads of things have just stacked up. One or two would have been okay, but we've had COVID exposure sites, so we've had isolation going on within us and the woofers. We've had someone's health falter, so we've had to do a hospital run. We've had really, really low temperatures and so um, we've got no wood and we've nearly been near on freezing for the last few days. Today the sun's shining so it feels like it's all going to be okay again. Um, we've lost our, we lost power and we've got new chicks and so we've had generators going right at our bedroom door to keep the chicks warm for a couple of couple of days we lost internet which meant i couldn't get any of this information through to the sound technician so it's been one of those weeks where you think yeah one or two would be okay but because we've got lots and lots of things going it really makes you question your resilience and it also really makes you question what matters what does enough look like so that you really feel secure and like you are well embedded and resilient for a changing future and i asked this question of tammy jonas who is who we're chatting with today. Tammy is uh, the president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. She's a previous academic, but well and truly an embedded hands-in-the-dirt farmer at Jonai Farms, where she's also the mistress meatsmith. Um, and she's without doubt the sometimes blunt, but amazingly capable voice of the small farming movement in Australia. She edited Farming Democracy and um, represents the UN on a number of developmental issues. She's without doubt a power of information, inspiration and actually hope. It sometimes feels like her academic language can feel a bit daunting but actually there's so much hope in it and there's so much realness in it that I came away feeling incredibly elated and I hope you will too. I have been three layers of wool. No No joke and I am still a bit cold. Well you're very prompt. Look at you go. How the hell do you fit your life together? I often say to Charlie, how is she doing all of this? Like she's actually <laughs> human. I know she's kind of subhuman, but how does she do it all? Uh, I-, I mean, I don't have little kids at home, remember? That helps. It's amazing how much time you have when you don't have small children. You do still um, have three and you do still have woofers and interns and moving parts. You've just got a lot of moving parts. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty well-oiled machine though. People who've come and stayed with us in the last couple of years have been like, wow, every Monday morning we have a team meeting and the first agenda item on that meeting uh, is the land's priorities. We ask what are the priorities of the land and further down the agenda, we get to tell our priorities as well, but we want to make sure the land's priorities are first first. and, and that guides the week's work, um, what the land's telling us it needs. And um, we sat down a couple of weeks ago and said, okay, let's, let's have a longer session and tell, ask what the planet's telling us. And so we had a big heartfelt chat about what we felt the planet was telling us about what human intervention on it was doing. And our work here has been so focused on undoing some of that for a long time. It wasn't a foreign conversation for us. But then we said, okay, now let's say, the planet's going to need to keep telling us this for quite a long time. What's our response to that going to be every single day right now? Not expecting that by December, we might be able to have workshops again, or by January, things might be different. Atticus might be able to move to the city. We're not, we're not thinking in those ways anymore. We've, re- we've decided to reject the expectation of change and to be mindful and present with the, um, the new uncertain normal. And that that's that's actually what we're just going to sit with. And we're leaning into the discomfort of it and finding our mindful, joyful practice every day as it is, not as we are expecting or hoping it to be in a couple of months time. And it's it's actually been really wonderful. The whole the whole community, I think, has has just settled into this mindful, joyful practice, you know, what new skills do we want to learn? Um, who wants to learn to make bread to get in this case? Mm. Or, um, and so what are we an going to do? Of the of, of uncertainty. Absolutely. We've just, yeah, and it feels so much better than thinking, oh, we'll be able to do those things we used to do again. Yeah. We're like, we, we, we don't have expectations about that. Yeah, we may never we have, actually get back to that as a reality. So this is the new reality and let's embrace yeah, we're and not what it can Yeah, we're speculating about any of that. We're just mm. sitting with what it is every mm. day. Mm-hmm. And and every day there's still a beautiful sky and there's still green plants and there's still pigs that need food and <laughs> there's still community that needs care and, um, yeah. Now you've got the headspace to do that because you're not holding really tight, that tight grip on what was. Absolutely. And not doing like mad um, transition planning, you know, like what happens if we can have workshops with 12 people, not 24. And I'm just go. not hosting workshops. Like if yeah. there's a time in future where we can again, then those won't be announced for a year's schedule in advance. They'll be announced when we know we can. We'll yeah, be like, yeah. oh, hey, how about we offer a workshop this month? Yeah. 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 Who's up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. sound advice because I tell you the quicksand flooring that we're all standing on is not going away. Uh, And, you know, there's an affirmation I read when I was 18 that I have tried to follow and been really shit at my whole life, (laughs) which is, it it says, it goes, I kneel at your altar, I drink from your well, I have no expectations, I am not subject to disappointment. And I have tried my whole life to not have expectations and not be subject to disappointment. Mm. And I'm here to tell you at 50, I think I finally got there. Hey, talk to me about your PhD. This is your second PhD, isn't it? So your first one. Actually, I'm fascinated by your first one. Uh, yeah, no, it's, I abandoned the first PhD. Um, I didn't finish it. And uh, and that one, it's interesting because it was around food. It was food cultures and, and sort of focusing on consumption. Mm. And then um, when we got to the farm, I just sort of 
I didn't want to be an academic anymore. And I'd, I'd gained the research skills and the kind of critical inquiry that I needed. And I felt like I could move on. So I didn't, I wasn't fascinated with questions of consumption anymore. I was fascinated by how much production drives consumption choices. Mm. And so I sort of abandoned the academy for years. And then when I got offered this um, PhD, I went, oh, on rare breed livestock, and I can make it about an agroecological transition and the role of governance. What? I'll just make it a PhD what I'm doing anyway. And somebody's going to give me a stipend to do it. So um, it's incredible. Like it's been a gift. Yeah. Complete gift. And then in turn, it'll be a complete gift to the rest of us who are looking to you all the time. And I know that must be a massive weight on your shoulders, but you do carry it well. That's leadership, I mean. But also that um, doggedness to just square your shoulders and carry the rest of our curiosity and the rest of our questions and the rest of our mistakes. And you're kind of pushing ahead from the front. You lead from the front. It's funny though, Jade, I love that you said doggedness because I think it describes me so well. And do you know I'm actually also a Virgo dog? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I knew you were a Virgo. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's so true though. And and, um, this last year doing all the PhD research has just uh, deepened and strengthened my capacity for the work like so much. And during the UN Food Systems um, counter-mobilization stuff we've been doing, like I just, in the, in the global movement, I'm just like this content machine. They just go, Shamali will contact me and just like, Tammy, we need you in the Asia Pacific mobilization. And I'll be like, okay, when is it? She's like tomorrow. And I go, okay. <laughs> so It's all in there. Um, I've just, I've just got to find the filing cabinet. <laughs> I've been doing so much of it, you know, like right now I'm, I'm meant to be writing a, a journal article for an, um, a journal called development. That's a very policy and activist focused um, journal. And again, I was given two weeks notice to get in a journal article on the Asia Pacific mobilizations around the food system summit and consult with my comrades around the region. So I've got to get the draft ready today so I can send it out because it's due on the 20th. Um, So I should feel really, really grateful that you've you've squashed me in. No wonder you're sitting there very efficiently waiting. Where the hell is she? You keep providing a platform for people to share these things, right? And that's so important. You know, what's the point of doing any of the work if you don't tell people what you're learning? So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, like I'm a, I'm a vessel. <laughs> yeah. And also there's um, something around, and I know I just framed you as our square shouldered leader that we're all looking to, but you're also a comrade that stands by our side because your hands are in the dirt. And I do actually want to ask you about that. You seem to transcend the world of academia, the world of, um, you know, policy, political leadership, but you're also in the dirt, yeah, you know, completely real. Totally for real. And one, it gives you credibility um, and it gives us in terms of those who are trying to work out what our methods of practice look like. It gives us confidence that we can go to someone like you and say, well, what do you think? But, uh, But also it's a really rare trait to find someone or meet someone that's got the ability to transcend all of those different genres. I would love to know your thoughts on one, where you think you naturally fit best, or two, whether you're this poly jobbist, and two, whether or not you think um, there is value at all tiers or not. Have you have you come to a conclusion? You've been doing this a long time now in lots of different ways. Have you come to a conclusion that says, look, I, I did used to do more of this, but I don't now because of this? And I do have well-formed views on it. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I have and, hit record because um, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I actually uh, find that sometimes these preambles are actually the most the yeah, most great. engaged. Look, I, yeah, I have I have fully formed views on um on the tiers, the idea of like the levels that people work at. And I've worked with so many people in the movement who whose energy is best spent in with their hands in soil and and you know building the food system where they are. And, and that's actually Stuart. I'm married to that. That's where he's, his talent is best used yeah. is you know here building and, and growing, um, not advocating in the UN. Like that would, he would honestly be like, shoot me now if he had to do that. Um, and, and actually, and then in the kind of, you know, being a local community activist and then being a, a state kind of lobbyist and being, um, being an academic and writing for those audiences. I do all of them because I, I actually find joy in all of them. Mm. And if I only do one of them, I start to get the same as anybody else. You get, you start to get the burnout, the, the being worn out from one kind of thing. Whereas just fatigue. I work on one very complex problem, food sovereignty, so phrased, but everything from getting my seedlings going in the greenhouse and making sure when it's a sunny day, I spend time with hands in soil to making sure that I always clear the schedule to be there for the entire butchery schedule because I love butchery and it's a, it's a mindful craft where I'm not, I'm not thinking about writing in journal articles. I'm thinking about uh, separating muscles in a way that's really beautiful and going to be delicious for the people who eat it. Mm. And that nourishes me in a totally different way. And the camaraderie with the team when we're in there too, you know, mm-hmm. it's just a really different way to spend the day than in front of a computer. Um, and I think that those who are helping me with the butchery in there too, like that, that role that Simon plays in helping run that whole space is super important to the whole movement because if Simon didn't do that, I couldn't then do the UN stuff. Right. Yeah. That's right. And, and, um, and so he doesn't need to be doing the academic or the or the global stuff either. Um, the global stuff too is there are very few of us who need to be doing that. It's I was going to ask you that because essentially what you're talking about is food sovereignty, which is about localization, and you talk often about how we don't need to be scaling up; we need to be scaling out, and we need lots and lots of small rather than <clears throat> few large. <clears throat> But then suddenly you find yourself in this sphere, which is almost a complete oxymoron where you are, or a paradox where you're actually fighting for local at a global scale. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's like brain breaking sometimes, you know, like you have to, you have to sort of, you're reading UN policy documents and trying to relate them back to your daily praxis and trying to help your daily praxis inform their policy writing. Mm-hmm. And it's not always that uh, coherent and it's not, always, you know, sometimes I just reviewed an FAO document on um, sustainable livestock production and small scale farmers. And, and they did a great job of grounding. Um, they had what they call good practices or promising practices to support small scale livestock growers. And they used living examples for the, to, for this guidance document that, that will be created. So that was an example of good policy for me. It actually spoke to grounded experiences but so many of these, I mean, I've got the, you know, the global biodiversity framework that we're working on at the moment, you know, ensure that all land and sea areas globally are under integrated biodiversity, inclusive spatial planning, addressing land and sea use change, retaining existing intact and wilderness areas. Try implementing that in yeah, the yeah. French Shire. Like, okay. So that's know. motherhood statement that doesn't actually land. Yeah. Yes, it's much harder for that stuff to 
feel as meaningful mm. because you know that most of your policymakers locally are never going to see this document. Mm. Um, and, and that's one of the, I guess that's one of the things I'm trying to do is understand how to, how to link good global governance initiatives to well-meaning local communities um, because they've got so much science behind what they're saying we should be doing in some of these motherhood statements. Mm. So now how to, how to link up that mm. daily. And it's an art. It truly is an art being able to take the intellectual version and put it into the on-the-ground everyday Joe version and still feel evocative and still feel desirable for people to want to take it and chew it and work with it. Yeah, and it's something I'm still really working on. That's It's hard. It's really you know, hard. And, and I do with AFSA a lot um, where the committee members not as involved with the international work will be like, can you explain the relevance of this <laughs> bit of work that we're apparently involved in? In terms and, it makes sense. Yeah, and so interpreting that is a really impo- important part of, I think, um, the roles that people like me and Georgie on the committee are playing. Mm. Um, yeah, so AFSA, you just made reference to AFSA, which is the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance, which you are the founding president of. Not founding. I was the second president, actually. Were you? I did not know that. Yes. Yeah, a man called Michael Croft up in, uh, who was a farmer outside of Canberra. He was the founding president. What I would love to ask, and it sits slightly outside of food, I mean, clearly that is all about food um, sovereignty, but what are your thoughts on the general state of consumption sovereignty? You know, we have the, the people having choice of what they eat choice of what they consume in every way, shape or form. I feel like food is something that is clearly your specialty, but I just want to push, I want to use your brain, but push outside of the realm that you're normally focused on to understand what you think about how we start to rebuild our culture. You know, we've just had the IPCC report land and that's telling us all levels of um, calamity are in front of us. But truly what it tells us outside of the stats is that we have this culture that is broken and we are so committed to growth and industrialisation and um, overconsumption. How do we actually look at sovereignty from a consumption perspective where culture plays a role? How do we change that culture? I mean, that's a huge question, right? Especially in the most urbanized country in the world where, mm. what is it, 80, 85% of mm. our people live in cities. Mm. Um, and, and growing so, rapidly. And yeah, that's, that's well, although with the pandemic, there's an argument that it's kind of flipping back again a bit, isn't it? That is you true. Know? Where you are right now and where no, I am right now in Dalesford. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. I think, I think the best things that are happening to fix some of the problems around consumption are happening very grassroots level of people empowering other people to take control of their lives again and their competencies. And, you know, we had a really interesting conversation over coffee this morning about um, Mads, who's now living with us, who's 25. And she was saying how, you know, she didn't grow up in a house where they made bread or yogurt. And every time she's learned another one of these skills here or somewhere else, she's been like, why didn't we do this? It's like not even that hard. And, (laughs) And she says, you know, we're so incompetent, you know, but like I look at these things in the supermarket and there's like 12 brands of yogurt. And I'm like, you know, to make yogurt, you just like use other yogurt. Yeah. <laughs> like these realizations dawning on her yeah. that you just make yogurt with yogurt and milk. <laughs> it's not that hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think 
those those realizations that can they're huge kind of light bulb moments but the actual skills that people have lost are not that difficult to regain and so you just need lots of champions in the community kind of going around going oh well i can teach you some more of these basic food literacy competences or whether as you say other forms of consumption whether it's mending your clothes or um obviously growing gardens is also not that hard mm. once you start to do it and pay a lot of attention and, and get the pleasure from biophilia, putting your hands in the soil. Mm. Um, I think for me, the most empowering way to change consumption, the problems of consumption is to take power back in people's own hands, quite literally one thing at a time. Maybe it's, maybe it's just, you know, bread with the dry yeast at first and before you try sourdough. Um, maybe it's, you know, maybe it is as simple as yogurt. Um, but I think, it's not something you can buy. I guess the important message our champions need to be taking out there is that we can't buy our way out of this mess. We literally need to work our way out of this. And that, that is a labor of joy. The reclaiming of competence is so, as you know, from your life too, it is so joyful to be competent and to do the labor that nurtures us and that means we don't go buy another shirt because this one tore. We mend it. Stitch you know, it all up. of those. Yeah, they're just deeply joyful, mindful moments. And when people can start to, I guess, spend time with others who are who are able to share those experiences and, and learn from them, they realize they're not being told, oh, get back into the kitchen. You know, let's needs to be like the olden days where you never had time to yourself. You know, that old kind of. Yeah, yeah. Rubbish. We actually live in the modern world and that's okay. We still already have all those technologies available to us. Completely. I mean, I use a KitchenAid to do the first knead on my bread. Well, I did until it broke the other day, but um, I have for years. And, um, yeah, we're not suggesting you give up all mod cons or anything, but the illusion, the illusion of choice, when you walk into a supermarket and think that you have a choice, you're already, you're at the wrong starting point. Mm. The, the thousands of items for sale in there are are not real choices. Mm. There are more ways to disempower you from making your own things. Mm. And I think starting there is a really good good start. You refer to yourself as an agroecological farmer. Tell me why you've moved away from regenerative farming as a term. I know it's just semantics, but I would love to unpack that to understand your rationale. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I have a huge admiration for those who consider themselves regenerative farmers and who care so deeply about healing country and repairing landscapes. Um, And so in wanting to make the distinction, it's not because I want to denigrate those who consider themselves regenerative farmers at all. That's not the point. Um, Regenerative farming has, and regenerative agriculture, I guess, is a phrase, has definitely been already very co-opted by big corporations. Mm -hmm. Nestle calls themselves regenerative, Fonterra, Cargill. Look at their websites. They all talk about regenerative agriculture. So um, that's that's what I am railing against. Like, clearly, that's not the kind of thing we're going to be supporting. But that's not what the people who are calling themselves Regen Ag in Australia that you and I mostly associate with, they're not Cargill, they're not Nestle. So why, why wouldn't I want to be like them? Um, it's not that I don't want to be like them. It's that agroecology has a really clearly outlined and, and described and practiced framework, a political, ecological, social framework, economic framework that Regen Ag doesn't have. So agroecology's theory of change is super 
clearly articulated mm-hmm. in in everything from academic work through to peasants on the ground and the way they're farming and collectivizing to fight against the power structures that are inhibiting their activities. So, you know, the agroecology is considered a science, a set of practices and a social movement. And it has tons of science to support, whether it's things that are also practiced in regen ag. So integrated pest management, holistic plant grazing, um, you know, using compost and, and uh, um manure on your on things like it's those practices are very shared between region ag and agroecology um the science and the practices however agroecology's practices go further because it's very dedicated to circular bioeconomies and not the um purchasing of inputs and so i think that in the region ag movement there's still a fair bit but not all a fair bit of the idea that you can replace bad inputs with good ones Mm, yeah and and that is still buying into a capitalist system that is not going to fix things. Yeah. So agroecology rejects capitalism and it re- and it values labor over capital. Mm. And so, again, it's not to say we're going back to the day where we didn't have tractors. We did go seven years without a tractor, but we've loved it <laughs> since we've had it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, so, yeah, it's not suggesting you never put money into cap- what people consider capital. But in agroecology, that's even kind of spelled out that that's it's often called patrimony for the farm. But I find that quite a patriarchal term. Um, so we call it benefaction. So if you if you buy a tractor, it's not because you're using it to write down your um, revenue and be able to pay less taxes and to be able to sell it later and upgrade later. It's because it enables the farm to do its activities more efficiently so that people can spend their day doing more joyful tasks instead of the repetitive lifting of 22 tons of rice. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> call. On a truck I was, was talking here. with Matthew Evans last week at Fat Pig Farm. He's like, oh, no, we don't have a tractor yet. I was like, Jesus, are you kidding? Who doesn't have a yeah. tractor? <laughs> if we weren't so reliant on waste stream feed here, we mm. still would be okay without a tractor. Mm. Like, like I said, we did seven years even bringing in pallet loads of um, waste feed and unloading it all by hand, you know, in like, in like those fire lines, you know, we'd sort yeah, of pass yeah, yeah. on like crates of milk and stuff. And that's where the value of uh, having a labour-based economy that is highly valued comes in. So you've just said a whole stack of stuff and it's just prompted a whole series of questions in my brain and I need to get them into some order so that I can capture this out of you in the most orderly way. But one of them is that um, you are really big on – so you've said that agroecology is a social movement and you've also said that you highly value labour and part of the way that you've undertaken um, to commit to that is through your internship program. I want to know two things. I want to know what that looks like academically but I also want to know how that impacts – your day-to-day existence and what a family that's operating in around that dynamic looks like. Has that at, at any time ever hit you between the eyes and made you think, Jesus, we just need to recalibrate and just go back to base with the family of five? Or has it always been that richly abundant, for the most part, sense of community at Joni Farms? It's definitely been predominantly the richly abundant sense of community, but that's not to say... It hasn't had um, difficulties for the kids sometimes when, you know, if you have an intern come who thinks that they're going to be another parent or a big brother to the kids. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's not that welcome. 
And yeah. so I, I set some fairly clear um, boundaries when we see that in the early days of somebody arriving, just like, you know, like Atticus is in year 12 right now. He definitely does not need another person telling him when to get out of bed or do his homework. Like he's got Stuart and I doing that already. Yeah. And that's sufficient. Yeah. So, um, so what, I mean, the current community is so deeply respectful of him being 17 and in year 12. And so we don't, yeah, there's none of those dynamics now, but certainly in the past, there've been a few who've come through who you just had to pull into line, particularly, I find particularly the boys, yeah. like the sort of having less patience for the kids. And, um, yeah. but it has not ever been a, it's never been a big enough uh, downside to having interns to need to move away from this model. Mm. Like they've, they've added richly to our lives since the beginning. And I mean, we've had a couple of problematic ones. Uh, but we're humans, yeah. right? So that would be expected. Absolutely. But, I, but the, the most of them, by the way, we, we actually have our own um, like Joe and I community Facebook page because there's this thing about, you know, you can never, you can, you can check it anytime you like, but you can never leave. That's, that's Joe and I. And, and actually, honestly, probably eight or 10 of them who came to us from other parts of Australia or the world have stayed in this region you know, and are forming this beautiful young farming community around us. And well, we're actually, here. I was down in your patch a couple of weeks ago before lockdown was actually, I was there when they announced lockdown and I had to get out of there by one o'clock. But um, I met quite a lot of them. And, you know, you are kind of this um, force from looking from the outside in, you know, Jonah Farms is this this little microcosm of energy and and learn, it's this learning centre that is admired and and revered. And but then you talk to them, you talk to those who've spent time with you, and you have categorically changed people's lives, and uh, obviously for the better. And I feel like you're spawning, and I know this is a massive part of your deep belief system that we we need to be spawning these thinkers, these curious upskilled, community-oriented humans and individuals to go out there and, and take whatever skills they've adopted from you and apply it to whatever it is that makes their heart sing and soar. It's and true. I met so many of them the other day. That tells them that they've arrived to become food sovereignty warriors. <laughs> 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 They're welcomed with that information that this is, you know, we're building an army of food sovereignty warriors. So if you come here and you think you're just going to learn farming, you've got a bit more to learn. <laughs> recalibrate (laughs) but that takes effort right I mean everything does right Mm. yeah I've certainly never been shy of effort so Mm. um, yeah it does and some of them are more effort than others because some come less equipped socially and politically for the Mm. work Um, I don't know but I'm here for it like Mm. literally here for it so and, and I mean, like I said, Mads, who's here at the moment, she came as, for a short-term internship and then she's not leaving. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> ever. <laughs> Probably ever. We're just keeping her. <laughs> she's um, she is her own force to be reckoned with. And she's doing a JD and she did her Bachelor in Indigenous Studies. And so all the work that AFS has been doing around First People's First Strategies and um, the Legal Defence Fund work uh, and supporting small-scale farmers in planning, all these things. Matt's just like she's this gift who arrived to help me with this work. She and I are now just comrades doing the work together and it's brilliant. Mm. It's so good. So solidarity is really important in this whole movement and I think the first time I met you might have actually been, it was, at um, the very first uh, Deep Winter. Oh, yeah, years ago. 
Yeah, years and years ago, it was bloody freezing. I've never been more cold <laughs> in my life. But um, I do remember thinking from my the tips of my toes to the tip of my tongue and my fingertips that every ounce of my being had just found its people. And mm. um, it kind of, that sense of solidarity washes over you and those gatherings, which now haven't, I haven't been to for a couple of years because of, largely because of COVID, um, are missing from my life. But it was amazing what one three-day block in a 12-month period had the ability to do. And it, it mm. really, it garners, um, you know, it, it, it garners a wholesomeness where you don't have to explain yourself and you don't have to uh, articulate using a different language because everybody in that room understands it. So solidarity is key and we talk about this on Future Standing a lot because people say to me all the time, but how do I, where do I start? How do I find my people? And I guess, um, how did you start? Uh, I mean, I think to be honest with the farming and food sovereignty world, it probably started more on social media. Like, you know, we came up here and we didn't really know anybody else in the region when we arrived. And and yet I, at the time I was quite active on Twitter and I was and I'd been writing my blog since I started the PhD. So since 2006, the first PhD that I abandoned. Um, and. Yeah, so it's, it was kind of like the, I was talking to people online who were far away about all these things that we all cared about and and then started to get to know the locals and then started to get to know the other farmers rather than just activists. And, um, and from there, I mean, there's that, there's that wonderful message from Fraser, you know, from old mill biofarm saying to all of us, I think we need to all just take some time off in the middle of winter. What are we going to do? And I'm like, well, we should just get together. Right. Like he's like, yeah. And then he rings me, Stuart and I were in Tasmania and he rings me and he goes, look, Tam, I think like, uh, you know how to make things like this just happen. Right. So what are we going to do? How are we going to make it happen? And I'm like, we're like, we're literally driving and I'm on the phone. Oh, Stuart's driving and I'm, I'm on the phone. I'm all, I don't know. I'll just set up a Facebook page and we'll just do it at my place. And then it doesn't require a lot of planning and we'll just go from there and see how it goes. And it went bang. <laughs> and then we had the first deep winter. And as you said, it washed over all of us. Okay. I'll never forget because we didn't even ask for RSVPs. We didn't know how many were coming. Mm. And so... So people started piling into the Dalesford pub that first night for the oh, for the yeah, welcome. I remember. And, and I couldn't get paid for love no money. Who own it? Like I'd said to them, I think there'll be maybe 80, 90 people. And as they kept piling in yeah. and we got to like 150, I went, Wow. Yeah. And I remember I remember just tearing up and going, We did it. We we'd come from all over. If we had people had come from all over. And yeah. You know, there were pork and poultry farmers, there were market gardeners, there were a few orchardists, not many but a few. It, it was all and sundry. There were activists, there were co-op coordinators, there, you know, it was everyone. It was, and it was beautiful. And I've been to most of them and they've just been gorgeous mm-hmm. coming together. Um, same as the Food Sovereignty Convergences for me. Like I just come away so nourished from those mm-hmm. times where we're together building the movement together. And, and yeah, solidarity is is critical to any movement Mm. and and one thing I guess that uh I sometimes struggle with is that classic left eating itself when there are certain uh when there's lack of solidarity between various organizations Mm. um 
and 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 I have been drawn into feeding the lack of solidarity when I've been unhappy with other organizations. And I've just got so much better in the last few years of going, no, I'm just not playing that bullshit game. Mm. I'm not here to, I'm not certainly not here to denigrate others' work. I just, there's some who are harder to work with than others, but whatever, we're still going to be on the same team Mm. because our corporate overlords are relying on us to fight with ourselves and not remember to turn and fight them. Mm. And, and I'm not, I'm not here for that. Like, I'm just, I mean, we're here to build solidarity and, um, that's the only way we're going to win. And I like think that's I've what the UN counter mobilization is so reliant on too. Yeah, well, that's right. I think I've heard you say before, and I mentioned it earlier, that you are always fighting not to grow up but to grow out. So we need more people doing this at a small scale. And so what we're doing really is sowing seeds so that when the industrial system that we're stepping outside of right now, we're not fighting it anymore because it sucks you dry. We're creating something new. What will happen? How am I going? What am I trying to say here? I think I'm probably trying to make a statement rather than a question. <laughs> I, I sometimes feel like you know we've just watched the rise and fall and possibly collapse of the Beechworth Food Co-op. I haven't been involved for a year or so, but because um, you know my time came and I got exhausted. But in my mind, I must have had your words ringing in my ears saying you just need to be sowing seeds because if there is a collapse or a ratcheting back, then we need to make sure that those seeds can proliferate and we've got them well spread and they're everywhere. And so I can get really disheartened about things like the rise and the fall of a small town food co-op. But actually it had a time and it had a place and it united people and it built skills and it gave people an opportunity to learn what did and didn't work. And it, what's going on there? I've got to let the puppy and she's whining. She's <laughs> <laughs> scared of the big truck. That's so, fair, Cole. That's if I get squashed in the mud. <laughs> Sorry. No, she's, I, a, she's a tiny little revolutionary. Her name is Che. What's her name? Che. Oh, yeah, yeah. Che. Oh, everybody needs one of them in their lives. Right. I think maybe I was asking a question. Do we build a new food system or do we use the ashes of the old system to create the foundations of salvation? Um, I think we build the new one. Yeah, I think, I mean, those ashes are always going to provide some launching off points, right? Mm. And um even if it's just being able to see those, for example, long supply chains and going, don't replicate that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so sometimes, yeah, sometimes they're just there to remind us how we ended up in this mess because somebody goes, oh, I have an idea. Why don't we ship that? Why don't we ship that to those guys in Queensland? Because you know, they want to come on. And you're like, no, because no. That's the same. There's no need for that. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. Um. So so yeah, no, I think I think building the new one is right. And and look, in the ten years that I've been involved in farming and the food sovereignty movement, um, the rise and fall of of farms and organisations is part and parcel of of the movement. Like it's it is part of it. And and yet, I know that some of the farms that started and then stopped, that they're they're off building more skills and knowledge and thinking and and gathering their resources inner and outer again to to reinvent to do something new that's Evolve still going to adapt. be yeah and the and that's like that's great you know that's not mm. only okay mm. it's great because if the thing you were doing wasn't working 
stop doing it, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's not working emotionally or physically or economically, then it's great that somebody made a decision to stop doing that and go do something else. But these are all people who've been transformed already by the work they have done. Mm. It kind of leads me to my next question for you. And and that does refer back to your desire to see us not scale, but multiply. Obviously that is a really fine balancing act um, because we're juggling, juggling financial viability, paths to market, you know, consumer desires and, and farming productivity. It makes sense, like what you're saying, out, not up, but how do we actually do that on a day-to-day basis and feel like we've still got um, business viability in us? Like we're, we're, we're creating something new and anyone who has a crack is creating something new and that's really daunting and really overwhelming. But how do we how do we crack it so that um, and I I think I'm, what I'm trying to do is get you to answer in a way that I've heard you say before, but I just you know I guess hearing someone of your caliber say we don't always get it right and we need to be experimental and we need to be kind is I'm not trying to put words in your mouth but I'm, I'm trying to formulate a question that um, I want to hear your words of wisdom on. Yeah, I think but I think that is. As you know, like Stuart and I are absolutely willing to have a go and we don't succeed at all the things that we have a go at. And um, and then we tell everyone whether we've <laughs> succeeded or failed because we want to help grow other people's capacity to do this too. And as we say, when people come for our agroecology workshops or what used to be Grow Your Ethics, um, we, we bring them here to learn to make new mistakes. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're going to share so many of our old ones that you really have no need to make those ones. You can make new ones. <laughs> Let frog off our back. <laughs> Absolutely. And so um, in terms of the viability of it, one of the beautiful things about being uh, at Jonah is we just celebrated 10 years and our viability has really never been in question except for in the early startup years as we, which we, you know, also bankrolled by me working for the federal government for a year. Mm-hmm. So um yeah, I mean, so when people say, how can we prove that small-scale farms can be viable? It's like, I mean, because we literally are and mm-hmm. we employ two people as well. And um, and we're making that work. And part of that is, you know, part of it's like the degrowth mentality mm-hmm. and that we want there to be sufficiency for everyone. And so when we reached our ecological, um, you know, boundary, when we said, okay, this is how much this land can produce, uh let's stop growing. We have, as you know, like a 20 year waiting list, we could grow, but imagine like go down the thought um, journey of what that looks like. We would have to buy more land. That would mean we would be taking on some debt that we don't already, we don't currently have to service that debt. We would have to grow more animals, obviously. At, At what point do you earn enough that you can then employ some more people to help that go. Oh dear. Now we've got it. We've got to pay those salaries too. Or maybe we should buy a little more land and earn a little more. And there's this, there's this creep that happens when small scales moving into medium scale, Mm. which is an absolute and obvious and repetitive breaking point that we've seen over and over again, that when you have the growth mentality, that's when you are going to fail almost certainly. And it used to be, get bigger, get out. So it used to be if you went from small and you went big, big, you at least had um, an economy of scale so you could survive a bit. But these days it's such a ruthless capitalist system Mm. that is so dominated by multinationals that 
it's mostly no get big and then get out. It's not or get out. So yeah, it's a pathway to failure in my view. And and it's also, I don't think it's very fun. I think that I know that seems like a silly thing for a business person to say. No, no. This I was getting there. That was my next question, actually. Yeah, like I see, I see the ones, you know. Back to your question earlier about I'm still this person with hands in the dirt and still with my hands on the knives too. The ones I see who end up just running a giant enterprise seem to have stopped having very much fun. And like you see how fun our lives are. Like we love what we do, all the different parts of it, which is not to say there aren't obviously bad days and jobs that we don't like. And, you know, they're always going to be things, but Ultimately, if I go, oh, God, I just can't bring myself to spend another moment in front of the computer dealing with these um, spreadsheets, I go, well, then maybe I'll go fertilize the garden. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll, you know, know, or I'll I'll work on a pastrami recipe because I was thinking of giving it a change. So I'm going to go read some cookbooks and have a think about what else to do there. And and I don't have to, I'm not a slave to running a giant enterprise and I don't want to be like, I'm not interested in that. I I'm a peasant, not an entrepreneur. And mm-hmm. I'm really super into that. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you're yeah. owning that front and center. I've Completely. only known you for maybe seven years, but I reckon, I don't know if it's just my opinion. I reckon you are more gray than you are black and white. And when I met you, I reckon you were more dogmatic than you are now. Do you reckon that's a fair assumption? And if it is, why would that be? Yeah. I mean, I think yes and no. I think when I was very young, I was, I was super dogmatic actually, like terrible in my early twenties. God forbid, you know, people listen to young people sometimes. It's these people who are opinionated like I was and still am. Um, But I think, yeah, by the time I got up here when I was 40, I sort of was moving more away from that way of being in the world, but I was still pretty ranty. And I think part of that was I'd come off the back of being a keyboard warrior rather than someone with hands in soil. And so I can, I used to consider myself a card carrying member of the outrage Rati. And I, I handed in the membership card when I got here because <laughs> I was so empowered by the work that we do. And, um, and I think the lower my rage levels came because of the, and the joy my empowerment gave me, the more it leveled out my ability to see complexity and sit with it um, instead of needing things to be clear cut. So I think that's been a big part of that journey. And then just, I mean, honestly, sheer age and the change of hormones when you go through perimenopause, like yeah. I just don't have, I don't have the, um, the constant flush of hormones that make me feel certain things in certain ways. I can have a more measured approach because I don't flash rage anymore and I don't. um, And also I'm such a committed activist. Like I've got, I've got my eye on the end game and being, um, yeah, being uh, antagonistic or, or binary isn't going to get me what I want, which is for all of us to have a food sovereign future where everyone has the right to good foods and good lives, you know? Mm. Um, So even if I'm right about something, is that what's even important? Yeah. Or is people being able to have a conversation and hear each other? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's something I say to my kids all the time. Do you need to be right or do we need to be happy? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, And just hurt. 
People can't hear you if they think that you're shouting at them. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's incredibly sound advice because I think we all go through, especially as we go through this transition of knowledge absorption, you go through a phase of thinking, oh, God, I just found something that everybody has to know. So I need to make sure that everybody I come into contact with hears this because it's really important that they know this too and they then transition their lives. <laughs> um, now, you are the accent that we're listening to is American and uh, there's a few things in that. I've heard you say a number of times that you grew up a, a white bread um kid you you didn't live like this as a child so at some point you went through a transition as well so I imagine you have a pretty deep understanding of what people's journey kind of looks like for sure um and it's taken you back to the states a number of times where you've got an incredible network and I've no doubt there are things about what's happening in America that uh you have seen as learning for us to apply over here but also for learnings for us to acknowledge and avoid over here. Are they a long way ahead of us and um, what? which parts of it do we want to try and replicate and which parts don't we? I don't know that we can replicate. The, the culture and history there is so, so different to ours and it can be easily, um, you can easily think that they're more similar than they are as I did when I first came from the States. Um, because you have, uh, you know, majority white colonized state um, with oppressed indigenous people and um, other minority people of color. And so it kind of can look similar. But the history that has led to the divisions they have in America is not our history. And the divisions in, in Australia are um, are really, really different. And I think more amenable to care and and reform i think it, yeah they're just it's very sad for me to see what's what happens in america um in terms of their farming movement their grow mentality even amongst the um even amongst the most kind of food sovereignty minded the growth mentality is really much harder for them to shake i think i mean you look at the start of the organics movement in the 60s and 70s in America and it by the 80s it was an industry not a movement and yeah. um and that's and that's happened here too of course uh so the industrialization of organics is a real and present thing that has destroyed the um the kind of credibility of certification schemes in many cases because those who are genuinely organic farmers don't want to be associated Certified. with the big industrial organics. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's um, some things we have already mimicked and others we haven't, but the getting big thing is one where I feel like we have an opportunity to learn from their mistakes. You know, I remember Ben and Jerry's selling out to um, some big, like I can't remember Danone or somebody and being like, what? These were just like these really cool guys yeah. in Vermont. What do you mean they sold out to the big guys? And oh, I was lost. All hope is lost. Um, but you see it in the in the farming movement all the time over there. So you've got like people like Bill Nyman um, who ran Nyman Ranch and was doing pastured, also grazing cattle, but also pigs, uh, which then started, I think then he sold it. And then it's still called Nyman Ranch, but they have intensified to be more like outdoor bread mostly. Uh, and they have aggregated something like 300 farms or something to sell through the one brand and, and, you know, he now runs his own ranch with Nicolette Han Nyman in um, 
in California who wrote Righteous Pork Chop and Defending Beef. She's a really big advocate for our space, but they run a pretty big operation. And I think they import New Zealand beef in their off season. Mm -hmm. So like, it's just a, um, yeah, I think that going down the path of growth is what we have to avoid doing, which they've done. And our smaller population maybe makes that easier for us to do Mm. because we can, we can give each other the warnings, Mm. you know, we can be like, Hey, Jade, you guys are thinking of selling your apples to Queensland. What are you doing? Mm. You know. <laughs> and also, am I reading between the lines when I hear you say a few comments that maybe it needs to remain a movement rather than an industry? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, I think thinking in terms of industries is a big part of what's got us into this mess. And and the idea that to be a successful business person, you have to be very business-like and, and, um, and, you know, be like a manager. You know, I hear people talk about being managers of their own farms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a jack of all trades. Today you're shoveling shit. Are you still a manager? (laughs) Exactly. That's right. Right now you're cleaning the bandsaw, lady. How's that that going for management? You know? um, Oh, that's so true. And so I guess one of the things we've, we've been trying to do here that I think there are people in America doing this, but not that many. It's like we went to the size the farm could be, and then we went, but it doesn't need to be. We actually got up to um, to 14 sows, and we now run nine. Um, so we, we came back because we thought that was better for land management, that we would more easily keep 100% ground cover if we had less pigs on the ground. Um, and And we, as we've scaled back and had more people helping run the system together, the more we grow our own food again. So we had some middle years of this decade where our gardens got more and more neglected while we were working ourselves into the state, right? And then, and it wasn't because we were trying to grow, it's because we got to the size we thought would be right and we found out it was actually a bit too too much. much. It was too much for the land and for the social life of our family. And so- God, that I needed to hear that. That is just, I feel like so many people will need to hear that. It's okay to scale back from what you're anticipated. We pulled back, we produce- less now and and so we garden more and and we're now kind of in this beautiful space where we're thinking about how we're going to have a much more abundant veggie garden in the coming year as well because now it's the first spring that we've had the fully enclosed greenhouse and um and so we're going to have enough tiny bit of surplus to sell to our csa members of some things right like that's how the garlic started with us as well and and that, like, that's the true peasant's life. Like you feed yourself first and you feed your surplus to the community yeah. and that makes you enough money to bring back to the benefaction of the farm yeah. to maintain your resource base and your social life in a way that is harmonious with nature. Mm. Like that's- And harmonious with your social group. You know, you, you share daily. In fact, I think when we were organising the time for this, you said, I can't do it later because that's our community lunch and that yes. doesn't get moved for anything. Like, yes, it doesn't. It's so I- good. I protect our meal times a lot more carefully than any other thing in my schedule. <laughs> the, community, the community sits down for three meals a day together, and um, that's that's fixed in stone. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I imagine imagine that's what we valued. So, you know, success in our world, I, I know that time's ticking and I could probably take your entire day until your um, community mealtime. If you didn't have a community mealtime, I'd just keep asking questions, but it's just as well you do. Um, success in our world is so heavily dominated by outward-facing 
grandeur and um, I know that's not your reality and reframing what people's enough looks like is obviously different for everybody but um, I believe really strongly that until we start to acknowledge that we actually nearly all do have enough and if you don't you've got excess to share with those who don't. What does your enough look like? I mean I'm living it. It's, you know, it's um, it's three meals a day with my community of people. It's feeding others and being like in the true CSA um, philosophy, being committed to educating our, eater, our community of eaters about what farming looks like and what it takes to um, to do this, but also to dismantle the other systems of power and, and enabling them to find their way out of other other um, kind of I guess ways they're beholden to the capitalist system. So not only feeding them beef and pork and garlic, but also helping them understand ways to disentangle from those other things that don't make them very happy. And to remember the simple things like, um, you know, like my constant thing about look up, like it doesn't matter what is going on in your day. The sky is always nourishing, like always. And, um, and so my enough is being able to see the sky and feed ourselves and our community here on farm and more broadly and and be nourished by all of that enough to fight for others' right to have what we have. You know, pretty much every year I just ask for everyone else to have what we have. So I guess I'm living my enough. Yeah. We all need a little bit more of that in our day, don't we? There's so many other questions I could ask you, but um, I th- I think you've um, – the conversation I knew was going to be a nourishing one and it's always not only nourishing but also a bit peppy and I, I kind of feel like we all need a bit of that peppiness in our, in our yeah, day. If I'm, not being, if I'm not being dogged, I'm busy being enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody hell, imagine being married to you. <laughs> it's not always a piece of cake, I'm not going to lie. I didn't imagine for a second it was. I did thank you very, very earnestly at a deep winter in Tassie maybe once because I feel like um, there are so many people now joining this movement and I'm always a little bit sceptical of movements but I see the value of them and I think that and it, as long as it is a movement it's still about the people. And yeah. um, I thanked you earnestly because it's really tough at the top and um, you're spearheading, and sometimes bluntly, but you are spearheading this on behalf of so many people who want mm. and can see the value of what it is that you're talking about and that you so earnestly and relentlessly articulate on our behalf. And not everybody right. can do that. In fact, very, very few people, I opened this interview by asking you how the hell you do it all. And, of course, you don't do it all all the time because no one can, but you you very competently navigate life as a polyjobist and, you know, for that I'm really grateful and I know so many others are too. And um, Jay, thank you. That's very kind. I mean, I do get enormous pleasure from the work. So, mm. you know, that's a pretty good positive feedback loop to keep doing it. Yeah, 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 yeah it is. And now you've probably got a... Um, it's only 11.21. You, you may have a little longer to go and sort out some puppies, but um, you've got a community lunch waiting for you.
and understand if that episode required a re-listen with a pen and paper in hand. I hope that um, it filled you with as much hope as it did me. I especially love the idea of starting every week with your on-farm community, making your plans around what it is that the farm or the land needs before the humans that's about to be implemented here at Black Barn Farm. Speaking of Black Barn Farm, we have just hit our straps. I, I know I started the episode at the top of the show saying that it's been a hell of a week and actually that's true but it probably would have been a whole lot harder if the wolfers that we had on deck weren't quite as marvellous as they are. We've got four here at the moment and two have been here for a month and two are going to be here for nearly three months um, but the week, you normally you'd, you, if you've listened to me before you I say that it takes about 10 days for us all to work each other out, find each other's trigger points, what our senses of humour are, what kind of foods we like to eat, what our skills are, what our gaps are, you know, all of those amazing human traits. And while there's no doubt that at the moment having wolfers is is a bit more complicated because we've got isolation periods and we've got um, work permits and things required for COVID, I'm so glad. We nearly didn't do it because I've got the book out and... Um, we've got kids homeschooling and we've just got a lot of moving parts and now that we're both off um, working as well we felt like it was maybe too much this year but I'm so glad we decided to take the leap um, and the reason I'm telling you this story is because Wolf Australia has jumped on board Future Steading and is now one of our partners which is really exciting because there's a huge amount of genuine synergy and I can actually leap from the rooftops and very comfortably shout the virtues of living a, a woofing existence as a host. And I get that it's not for absolutely everybody, but if you're just a little bit curious about either being a farm volunteer or being a host, then jump on their website. They're at wolf, which is www.wof.com.au. And it'll at least give you an idea about what the expectations are, what kinds of things people do, what hosting really looks like. Um, and then if you've got any questions, drop us a line on our Insta page or our, or our Facebook page because I've we've now been hosting Wolfers for five years, uh, four years, and um, oh, we would have had close to about 40 come through from all different countries with all different skills and all different cultures and all different desires and personality traits and ages. And it's been really one of the most incredible experiences I ever could have bought to our farm and to our family. Anyway, with that, I will um, lead us into next week. Next week, I'm going to introduce you to a lass from South Australia who, despite being new to growing food, has caught the bug and actually done it with incredible success. And along the way, she shared her story via social media and the success that she's found there has also meant that She's got a huge number of people uh, following and being inspired to get their hands in the dirt and seeds in the ground. Anyway, have a great week. Go gently. Mm-hmm.